Isaiah chapter number 35. If you're there, say amen. amen. I have a long time been looking forward to preaching this particular prophecy in the scripture. In fact, for years I have wanted to preach through Isaiah's prophecies. And I'm so glad the Lord gave us peace to be able to study these prophecies here during this Christmas season. And uh, last week we looked at the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapter 9. Begin to look at the prediction of the coming of the Messiah. And today we're going to look at the promise about the coming Messiah. And I love the truth that the Word of God presents to us here. Now before we read some of our text, let me give you a little bit of background as to what's happening in Isaiah's prophecy. In chapter 34 and 35, Isaiah sets before the people of God two paths. Two ways. There is the holy way, and there is what we could call the horrendous way. There is the right way, and there is the wrong way. One of the ways leads to divine blessing, and the other way leads to divine judgment. One of these paths leads to heaven, and the other one leads straight to hell. And there is no apology made for the two paths that God moved the prophet Isaiah to present to the people of God. Now on the day in which Isaiah prophesied, the fact is that God's people Israel had chosen the wrong path. They were going the wrong way. In Isaiah chapters 28 through 34, Isaiah gives what we often call a declaration of woes against all the nations that defy Almighty God. And among those nations who are listed as deserving of judgment are the people of Israel themselves. The fact is, judgment was coming. And there was nothing that was going to change that fact because of the iniquity of the nations. And the truth is, many of the prophetic judgments that Isaiah had foretold were going to take place have already come to pass. And yet, as you study the truth of the prophecy of Isaiah, there are still some that have yet to be fulfilled on the scene of this world. And that coming judgment is still one that we await when God comes again and gives the final judgment to the nations. But the, re the reality is, when Isaiah began to pen these words, it comes after a declaration of judgment upon Israel and upon the nations. And while the news of this impending judgment was and, and still is foreboding, God gave a glimmer of hope in presenting a different path for his people to take. Yes, they were on the wrong path. Yes, they were headed straight towards judgment. And yes, God had given them a way to be delivered. God had given them a different path that they could take. And so in the midst of a wicked society that was stumbling headlong towards this judgment, God gave a promise of deliverance to those who would trust in him. And I want you to see it in short. We'll read verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah chapter 35, where the Bible says, Strengthen ye the weak hands, and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, 
Your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Hear the words of that promise. Resound again. The Lord said, your God will come. He will come and save you. That was the promise that was given. Think, I want you to think about it in this way. God offers people a way to find hope. And the way to enter into this place of hope swings on the door of God's promise that he will come to save you. See, when we think about this one who came at Christmas, understand in a great measure, Jesus's arrival on the scene of history was a fulfillment of this prophecy. He came to give us a different way, a way that did not lead to judgment for our sinfulness, a way that led to deliverance and salvation and forgiveness and hope for us all. And this is why when the angel announced to Joseph the soon coming birth of Jesus, he said, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus came. And in so, and in so many incredible ways, this promise has already been fulfilled and, and, and some of what is listed in this prophecy still has yet to be fulfilled but all of it is going to be fulfilled through this one person who we celebrate during this season and all seasons as believers and that is Jesus the one who has come to save us so I want us to look at this prophecy of hope and consider three beautiful aspects of this promise about Jesus that will impact our lives. And as we do so, why don't we pause for a moment to pray, still our hearts, and ask for God to speak to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you uh, this morning, and uh, we need the anointing power of your Spirit, not only to help me preach, but to help all of us be able to hear and respond to the preaching of your Word. And God, I cannot do this without you, and I do not want to pretend that I can, because I know that I can't. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would take over in this service. I ask that this message of hope that you gave through your prophet would be communicated afresh and anew um, with application that will help us live the lives that you desire for us to live. And I pray that if there's one who is here who is without hope, that they would find hope in the way that has been made to them to God through Jesus. And I pray, God, that you would be glorified in these moments we spend together. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. The first beautiful aspect of this promise I want you to notice this morning is the excellency of the promise. Notice first off the excellency of the promise. Now we're going to go back to Isaiah 34 for just a minute to begin to paint the picture of what's happening here. Because this is what happens. Isaiah painted a dark picture of the coming judgment of those who defy God and and Isaiah 28 through 34, the picture does not look good, what is coming on Israel and on all the nations. But then right over that dark canvas, Isaiah begins to paint another splendid, excellent picture of what was going to come when God stepped down into this world. 
And I want you to notice what he says, starting in chapter 34 and verse 16. If you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says, Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate, for my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it has gathered them. And he hath cast the lot for them, and his hand hath divided it unto them by a line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell therein. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. The gracious beauty of God's redeeming work can be heard in every line that we just read. What we just read about was how God was going to take the desperate, desolate situation of this dark world and transform it in His grace. When He steps down in this world, everything begins to change. Yes, judgment was coming upon this world and it was terrifying. But what was even more amazing was the difference that was going to happen in this world when God stepped into it. And as we look at this, uh, uh, this promise that begins to be given to us here, there are several reasons behind the excellency of this promise. The first one I want you to note down is that it is sure. This promise is excellent because it is sure. In verse number 16, we read it a moment ago. The Bible says, seek you out the book of the Lord and read, no one of these shall fail. God had stated, and I don't have time to elaborate the context as much as I would like to, but, but God had stated in chapter 34 that the day would come when wild beasts would inhabit the desolate lands of the nations who had defied him. Uh, after they had received their judgment from God, these wild beasts would begin to live in those lands. And then he stops here at the end of listing all these judgments. And he essentially says, go ahead and read that out loud again. He said, seek out the book of the Lord and read it out loud. I want you to hear this very clearly. Every single thing that I said is going to happen. That's what God is essentially saying here. He wants us to hear him very clearly. It makes me think of when I was a kid, if uh, my parents said something once, it had a certain level of significance. If they said it twice, it was very significant. And God is repeating himself here. He's making himself very clear that everything that he said was going to come to pass would indeed come to pass. And I'm so glad, unlike the words of men, that sometimes when they say something, it doesn't happen. When God says something, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. I always heard the old preacher say, when God says it, that settles it. It's as good as done. And that's what God is demonstrating to us here. Numbers 23 and verse 19 says, God is not like a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? In other words, God's good for his word. And the excellency of this promise is seen in the certainty of this promise. 
It's not just flowery language to give us vain hope that doesn't actually exist. But when God does say something, we can be certain that it will come to pass. So this promise is excellent because it is sure. But I see also that this promise is excellent because it is sovereign. It is sovereign. Look at verse 17. He talks here about how he has cast the lot for them. These wild beasts that were supposed to inhabit the lands that had received judgment. He's cast the lot for them. And his hand has divided it unto them by line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell therein. What the Bible is essentially telling us here is that God himself has already determined how things are going to unfold in this world. God is the one who is sovereign. He's the ruler over all people. And so the casting of the lot and the dividing of the land by line to these wild beasts speaks of how God had, had marked out like a surveyor the place where he was going to have these wild beasts inhabit the land. And he had already determined that it was going to be given to them. And the important thing here is that this was a, a thing that was determined not by man. It didn't happen by happenstance. But it was a thing that had been determined long before it ever happened by God himself. And while God used nations like Assyria and Babylon to bring this judgment upon the, the known world of that time, it was God who was behind the scenes overseeing all the things that came upon this world. In the midst of all the difficult and consuming things that are happening in the world, it's very easy for us to lose sight of a very simple fact that we ought really to never lose sight of. And that is that God is always in control. Right. Always. The Bible says in Psalm 103 and verse 19. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. And so one of the reasons this promise is so excellent. Is because it's not a promise that rests in the hand of someone. Who cannot control whether or not it happens. But it rests in the hand of someone who very much has the ability to make happen what he says. It is excellent because it is sure. It is excellent because it is sovereign. But I see this as well. This promise is excellent because it is spectacular. It is spectacular. In verses 1 and 2, the Bible begins to describe some incredible things to us. And what God was about to do in judgment would produce something that would be truly spectacular. As we've read in verses 1 and 2 of chapter number 35. Out of the ashes of this judgment God said he was going to bring on this world. Would, would rise a living and fruitful land in the midst of a dry and barren wilderness. If you look at, the, at verse number 1. The Bible says that the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it. The excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. God was going to transform the parched land and make it into a productive land. And in fact, so much, so splendid was going to be what God was going to do in those desolate lands that that the these lands were actually compared to the places that were considered to be the most beautiful in that region of the world. Places like Lebanon and Carmel. 
um, and Sharon. Oftentimes we hear about the cedars of Lebanon. We hear uh, a description of God that he's the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. It's because these places were beautiful places. And the picture the Bible's painting for us here is that God was going to take a place of desolation and death and destruction. And he was going to turn it around to make it even more beautiful than the most beautiful places these people had ever seen before. And that's why this promise was so excellent, because what God was describing to these people was something that was beyond their comprehension. And really, the glory of the land pointed to the greater glory of the God who was behind the transformation of the land. And so that we see the excellency of this promise that was given, which leads us to the second truth I want us to look at here. And that is the encouragement of the promise. Not only do we see the excellency of the promise, but we see, secondly, the encouragement of this promise. God talked about judgment and how that judgment was going to be transformed into something beautiful. And this was a truth that he intended to be to be encouraging to his people who were in a very bad place spiritually, who were in a very bad place nationally. And he begins to share this truth. To be able to encourage his people. And yes, he told them there were going to be difficult times ahead. But what God was going to bring out of that difficulty was something that was worth looking forward to for them as a nation. And so as we think about the encouragement of the promise that was given here, I want you to see several things that it did for the people of God. And that several things that, that it will still continue to do for us if we'll allow it to. First off, I want you to note down that it provides strength. It provides strength. Look at verse number three. In fact, why don't we read verse three out loud together? Here's what the Bible says. It says, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Now, Isaiah describes a people who were desperately worn out. They were worn down. Their hands had no more strength to even be lifted up. Their knees were tottering and shaking. And uh, some of you say that is my daily experience as soon as I wake up. Right? I understand. The idea is that they had slumping shoulders and tottering knees. They were so weak they could hardly lift their hands. And their knees were just at a place where they were about to give way. They just couldn't take another step. And this described the state of Israel during their, these years that they had slowly drifted away from God. But here's the thing. God whispered strength to those weak hands. He whispered security to those feeble knees that couldn't take one more step. And the news that God would come and restore them. He meant it to be a source of strength for them. Now, I'm getting warm in this thing, so I'm going to take it off. But I remember uh, just, a, just a little while ago, and I've done this several times now, but I remember being up in the mountains, and I, I, I was, we weren't even hunting. I wasn't even hunting for me. It was with two other hunters, and one of the hunters got a bull, and one of them got a cow. But they didn't just get it right off the road so we could pull right off and uh, you know, put, it, put it in the vehicle. It was up one side of the mesa, down the other side. That's where it was at. And uh, it, was, it was quite, uh, quite an ordeal. And I remember, so it was so exciting when the bull went down and the cow, the cow went down as well. And I was so excited for my friends. But then I remember looking down in that valley and thinking, what did we do? 
we marched down and we got, we got that, that animal uh, cut up and I did a very foolish thing. I decided, that, uh, uh, I decided that to save time, I would carry two quarters out up the mesa. Well, that completely used up all of my leg strength. And uh, something that's never happened to me before began to happen after that. Uh, I, would take, I would take 10 steps and start cramping up. I just, I just, I couldn't go on. And I, and I remember uh, going through that just a couple months ago. And uh, while, we were, while we were up there, uh, on top of the Mesa, you were able to get cell phone signal. And so uh, uh, naturally, there were, there were about four of us, uh, which should have been enough to do the job. But uh, one, of the, one of the gentlemen uh, was a little bit older and wasn't able to carry anything. And so we called some people for help. He said, who did you call? Oh, like any good man, I called my wife. That's who I called for help. Um, <laughs> Now, Emily's an incredible lady. She was more than capable of coming and helping with that, and that she did. And, and another, another of the men, we called, uh, called uh, his wife as well, so they came to help us. We were carrying it up on top of the mesa. All we needed for them to do is take it and carry it down the other side. Uh, not, not, not quite as difficult, but uh, still uh, a heavy load. But anyways, I remember carrying, uh, I think I carried three or four of the quarters up on top and then across that whole mesa. And I remember getting to a place where I just felt like I couldn't take another step. I mean, when I read this passage of scripture, that's exactly what I was, what I was thinking of. But here's the thing. As soon as I found out help was coming, as soon as my wife said, we're on our way, I don't know what it was, but it gave me some hope. <laughs> Somebody's coming to help. I don't feel like I can take another step but you know what? If they're coming, maybe I can just carry it across the top so that they can carry it the rest of the way down. And it just gave me a little strength to take another step. And the truth is that every one of us can get to a place where we're worn down in the way that we're going through life. But when you realize in the midst of all the difficulty that God has allowed you to go through, that he is coming to help you, it'll give you strength to go on. See, the Bible says, but they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They that wait upon the Lord. And it's interesting to me uh, thinking of that in this context. Because God told these people, I know you're in a bad place. And I know you feel like you can't do this anymore. And I know you feel like you can't go on. But I've got good news that I want to encourage you with. Your God will come. And he'll give you strength to keep going. So it gives, it provides strength. But the second uh, encouragement about this promise is that it provides courage as well. It provides courage. In verse number four, the Bible says, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Now the people of Israel were terrified of what lay ahead for them as a nation of people. The Bible says they had fearful hearts. The word fearful here in the Hebrew, it's talking about being anxious or being worried about something. And they had every reason to be worried, humanly speaking. They had every reason to be anxious because their sinfulness had driven them to a point where they knew imminent judgment from God is what they deserved. And the nations surrounding them were growing and were threatening to overtake them and to, and to overrun them. And yet in the midst of all these fears, 
God encouraged them to stop and exercise faith in him. And he essentially told them that they did not have to be anxious. All they had to do was trust in him. It reminds me of what the psalmist said in Psalm 118. He said, uh, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hey, if God be for us, who can be against us? That's what Paul said in the book of Romans. The fact that your God has come ought to be a fact that chases away all your fears. The fact that your God has come, that your God is here for you, that your God is here for you in whatever circumstance you may be going through today is a, is a truth that ought to chase away all the worry and anxiety that is inflicting your heart during this season. Because no matter what enemy or difficulty may be threatening you and filling your heart with fear, you can find courage in the fact that your God will come and save you. Psalmist said in Psalm 56 and verse 3, What time I am afraid, I will what? Trust in thee. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Boy, this promise is a promise that provides us with strength, that provides us with courage. But I see that it also promises us some things. You see, it promises retribution. That's the next thing I want you to write down. It promises retribution. Look at verse 4 again in your Bibles with me. The Bible goes on to say this in verse 4. It says, your, uh, 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 Say to them that are of fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with what? Vengeance. With vengeance. Now, I'm not going to park here long for sake of time. But God was not only coming to save them. He was coming to avenge them. The word vengeance speaks of avenging someone. And uh, this was reassuring to Israel that though they had been wronged, and by the way, let's just be honest, uh, uh, nations have been cruel to the Jewish people. And that, that did not, that's not just a thing of the past, that's a thing of the present. Uh, we think of the Holocaust and those horrors that the Jewish people have gone through, but what about the things that are happening with Hamas today? What about the attacks that are still happening to the people of Israel today? The people of Israel are a nation that have been inflicted by enemies throughout their history. And yet God gives them hope and the promise that God is coming one day and he's coming to avenge you. Now, that's an incredible promise for them, but I believe it also has application for you and I today. And uh, look in your notes at first, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And boy, I don't know about you. But it's a comfort to me to understand and rest in the fact that God is the one who one day will come and bring justice to all the injustice that happens in this world. And those things that I've had to go through, that you've had to go through, that weren't right and you knew it. And you wonder, is there a God in heaven who is going to stand up for me and make right, what I, make right the situation where I've been wronged? There is a God who is going to set things right in this world. And that ought to give you hope today. This is a promise that encourages us because uh, it, it promises us retribution. Then I see this next thing. It promises reward. See, verse number four not only says that your God will come with vengeance, but it says your God will come with a recompense. 
See, he's not just coming to avenge, but he's coming to award. And boy, this is an encouraging thing for us as the people of God. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's the application for you. When God comes again, if you've been forgiven of all your sin, hey, he's not coming to judge you. He's coming to take you to himself. And when he comes, you'll stand before his throne and he's coming to give out rewards. Not, not judgment for the things you've done wrong, but rewards for every effort you've made for the cause of Christ. The Bible tells us that every one of us as believers will stand one day before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation twenty two seventeen. the Lord Jesus said, And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And I don't know about you, but it encourages me to keep on, keep on at it, to stay, keep on staying faithful for the Lord. When I think about that day, when my God comes again, my Lord Jesus comes again, and I'm able to stand before him. And he, and he hands out those rewards for faithful service to him. And I'm able to give them all back to him and set them at his feet in an act of worship. It's an encouraging thought. And so this promise encourages us because it promises us reward. But the next thing I see here is that it promises rescue as well. Look at verse 4. The Bible says your God will come. And at the end of the verse it says he will come and what? That's why he's coming. You see, ultimately, this is a promise for what God's primary goal was for us as humanity. He is coming, and the reason he is coming is to save you. And uh, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 that when the angel who pronounced Jesus' birth uh, uh, came, he declared openly the reason that Jesus was, was coming was so that he could save his people from their sins. And so those of you that are here without hope in your present circumstances, I have an encouraging word for you today. Your God, your Creator... He has made a promise that he is coming to save you. And not only has he made a promise, he's kept the promise. When he stepped down that first Christmas into this world, he lived 33 uh, sinless years on this world. He died on a cruel cross. He was buried and he rose again. He's ascended to heaven today. And now the Bible says he is able to save anyone who comes to God by him. He's kept his word. And as believers, and even if you aren't a believer... This promise is encouraging because it's a promise that we can find salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we see the excellency of the promise. We see the encouragement of the promise. But the final truth I want you to see this morning is the exchange of the promise. The exchange of the promise. Isaiah portrays the incredible exchange that would take place when God came. And this Dark world that was going to face judgment from God. The first scene is very bleak. Uh, wild animals are roaming over the lands that used to be inhabited by the nations. And in this, in this desolate place, God enters into the scene. The promise is given. Your God will come. And after he comes, notice the exchange. 
Notice the transformation that takes place. Verse number five, the Bible says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as in heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water, and the habitation of dragons or uh, lizards, where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. Here we begin to see first off an exchange perspective that the Lord begins to unfold for us in the scripture. And the scene that is described for us in these verses is that of drastic change. God comes on the scene, and all of a sudden, blind eyes can see, deaf ears, ears can hear, lame legs begin to be able to walk again, and, and mute tongues begin to sing aloud in praise to God. Can you see the scene unfolding in your mind? God comes on the scene in the wilderness where there is no water. Uh, uh, water now is found there. In the desert where it's, it's desolate without, without even, uh, uh, even a pool of water. Now there's streams flowing in the desert. And in the dried up watering holes in the wilderness, there's water once more. And all around in these desolate places, there's green grass growing. There's reeds springing up around the waters. And this place that was desolate and forsaken without inhabitant, God comes on the scene and everything changes. Now, many of these prophecies that are given here have already had a literal fulfillment uh, soon after Isaiah gave this prophecy in the days of Israel. And yet from a spiritual standpoint, most of these prophecies were fulfilled when Jesus Christ came into this world. You see, Jesus, by his own admission, he came to open eyes that were spiritually blind. To unloose ears that have become spiritually deaf to God's truth. To make the spiritually handicapped man who had no power of himself to be able to live for God. To make him be able to spiritually walk again. All of these things that are described for us here are things that happen when Jesus Christ enters in on the scene. The point is, when Jesus enters into someone's life, everything changes. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I like the old song, uh, we ought to sing it sometime. <clears throat> it goes, uh, uh, once I was lost in sin, I had no peace within to save my weary soul. I knew not how, but Jesus came to me and by his grace I'm free. And now it's different. Oh, so different now. It's different now since Jesus saved my soul. It's different now since by his blood I'm whole. Old Satan had to flee when Jesus rescued me. Now it's different. Oh, so different now. Have you experienced a difference when Jesus comes into your life? See, it's just not the same. When God comes, it changes everything. Now, some of you, that's your story. In fact, if you've been saved, I'd say that's all of your story. Your life was a desolate wilderness. You were shriveled and dried up, and there was no hope for you. But God stepped into your life, and everything changed. 
A marriage that was on the rocks all of a sudden has been saved. A life that was headed straight along towards ruin has been delivered all because God has come and changed everything for you. I love it. We see the exchange of the promise. It's an exchange perspective. But the final truth I want us to see is that it is an exchanged path. It is an exchanged path. You see, when God comes, He gives a new way for His people to walk on. A new path for His people to make their progress through life. And this path is described in verses 8 through 10. We'll look at these briefly and be done. Verse number 8. You're there with me. Say amen. amen. The Bible says in verse 8, And an highway shall be there, and a way. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err there. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Boy, what a special path this is that uh, the Bible begins to describe for us here. This path that God, when He comes, is going to make for those who trust in Him to follow down after Him. I want you to notice several things about this path before we're done. First off, I want you to see it's a special path. See, the Bible says in verse number 8 that a highway shall be there. Alright? So where exactly is there? That was what, what I thought of when I looked at this. There is in the desolate wilderness, in that dry land where the wild beasts were roaming around, in that place where nobody in their right mind would have thought to make a path, in that place where people don't, don't just go walking, in that place where a lot of people would say, oh, there's no way you can make it past that way. There's no water that way. There's a whole lot of present predators and, 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 and dangerous things that way. You can't go that way. On that way, God made a path. That's what's being described for us here. And uh, suffice it to say, in the words of Spurgeon, he said this, Engineering has done much to tunnel mountains and bridge abysses. But the greatest triumph of engineering is that which made a way from sin to holiness, from death to life, from condemnation to perfection. Who can make a road over the mountains of our iniquities but God Almighty? None but the Lord of love would have wished it. None but the God of wisdom could have devised it. And none but the power of God could have carried it out. And I'm here to tell you today, I'm so thankful that God has made a way where there didn't, it didn't seem like there could ever be a way for us to be able to be saved. The Bible says He's made this highway for those who trust in Him to be able to walk on on their way towards heaven in eternity. And by the way, I think the Bible also makes clear what that way is when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. We see it's a special path, but I see also it's a sanctified path. Verse number 8 said it's going to be called the way of holiness. Holiness is a word that means to be set apart for a special purpose. And I think of it uh, as in, uh, as in the, 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 the big cities. When you go to a big city, they have those HOV lanes. 
And only certain people are supposed to drive in those lanes, all right? Well, this is a set-aside lane. This is a set-aside way that only certain people are able to go on. Uh, this is a special way that uh, it's not the wide way that the majority of the world is taking, but it is a narrow way that can only be taken by those who enter in upon it by faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And boy, I'm just, let me just suffice it to say the way that God has called us to make our progress through this world is different than the way this world makes their progress through this world. Right? We are called to live holy lives. And when God saves us, he transforms us from the inside out. We don't live the same way we used to live. That's the beauty of what the Bible is describing here. It's a special way. It's a sanctified way. I see a third thing. It is a selective path. Not only is it all these other things, but it is a selective path. Verse number 8, the Bible says that the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be, a, uh, but it shall be for those. Who are those? Well, those who live holy lives. Those who have had their lives transformed by the God who is described in this passage. Let me just make this clear to you. Listen to me on this. This is a way... That will not be traveled by those who are not saved. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are not on this path that's being described towards heaven. You are going the other way that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Here's good news. Very easy for you to take a detour off the way you're taking right now. The Bible says if you're a sinner and you know you're a sinner, if you'd be willing to confess your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can take an exit off the broad way that you're on and enter, on, enter in on the way that the Bible's describing for us here. And only those who are saved are walking on this path, are going this way. It's a selective path. The next thing I see is that it is a safe path. Look at verse number 9. The Bible says no lion shall be there. Nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there. Well, I love the picture here. Those who walk on this path are safe from the predators that prowl around in highways during the time the Bible was written were especially dangerous places. Not only because of the animals, but because of the pillagers and, and robbers that would hide themselves along those pathways. But God describes this way that He's going to make for His people as being a place where there's going to be no fear, no threat, no harm that His people have to worry about. And You know, the Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. And boy, we have real enemies and real adversaries that exist in this world. But as believers, we don't have to live in fear of them. Because as 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Greater is he that lives in you than he that lives in the world. How many of you are thankful for that today? Amen. See, walking on the holy way, walking on this path that God has brought us to walk on, we don't need to fear. It's a safe place for us to walk. And I've often heard it said, the safest place for you to be is right in the middle of the will of God. No matter where it leads you. Even if the pathway that he leads you down seems dangerous to the people in this world, if you're walking with the Lord, you're in the safest place that you could ever be. It's a safe, it's a safe path. And then I see next that it's a supernal path. It's a supernal path. Verse number 9, look at what it says at the end of verse 9. It says, but the redeemed shall walk there. 
And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs of everlasting joy upon their heads. And the Bible tells us here that this is a path that's only trod by the redeemed. Those who have been redeemed, those who have been ransomed. Redeemed speaks of being rescued from something. Ransomed speaks of, of being bought back uh, away from captivity. And, and what a blessing it is to be able to walk down this way God has given us to walk on with other believers who, like us, have experienced the salvation that the Lord has brought to us. I tell you what. It's a wonderful thing to be able to make my way through life with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. See, this is, this is an enjoyable path to walk. And I'm glad I don't walk it alone. And I'm glad that I get to share fellowship with others who have had their lives changed by God entering into their lives as well. It's a supernal path. The final thing I see is that it is a satisfying path. Verse 10 talks about how the people of God, they'd walk on this way and come to Zion. That's Jerusalem with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. But can I just say there is no more blessed way to take through this life than the way that God describes for us here. No more satisfying way to go. The Bible describes those who take this way as being able to do so with singing and with shouting. And with a satisfaction that can't be found anywhere else in this world. And friend, you can try the things that this world has to offer you. But I guarantee you something. You'll never find full and lasting satisfaction there. But if you choose to go the way God is describing for you here. You will find a peace that passes understanding. And a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. That's what you'll find on this way. There's no more satisfying way than to go the way that the Lord has given us to go in following Him by faith. So I told you at the beginning, God has given us two options, two ways. One is the holy way, and one is the horrendous way. One's right, one's wrong. One, God's, one is God's way, and one is your way. You have a choice today. What direction you're going to take. Today God is giving you the option. To take a detour. Off the way you've been going. And receive his offer. To take the better way. To take the highway. To take the way. That you allow God to enter into your life. And bring that change and transformation. That we saw described in the scripture. Just a moment ago. The way to enter on this road swings on the door of God's promise that he will come. God has come. But perhaps today, there's never been a time when you have let Jesus Christ come into your life. And begin, begin to bring this change into your life. Today, if you are here and God has spoken to your heart. And you realize that you are... You have not experienced the change that the Bible talks about in the scripture. Your life is that shriveled, dried up, desolate place. You're tired of the way that you've been living. God's giving you something better. But you won't experience it unless you receive the truth of the promise that your God will come. Jesus wants to come into your life today and change everything.
but you have to be willing to let him in. So if you haven't, I hope that you'll do that today. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It's very simple. Just receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he begins to make everything different. It's just that simple. I know many of you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I know many of you know what it's like to begin to experience this change in your life. Here's what I ask to you. If you've already taken this way, you already know that you're saved. Will you let the promise that your God will, will come fill your heart with fresh hope today? See, some of you, you got saved years ago, but you're not living like it today. You're discouraged. You're downcast. By the way you're living today, it would surprise some people to believe that you've actually got a living God in your heart. Some of you need to be reminded, your God has come. He's made everything different for you. And let that truth bring you fresh hope today. Let it fill your heart with courage where you haven't had courage. Let it fill your hands and your knees with strength that you have forgotten you had because you stopped relying on the Lord. Let the truth that your God will come bring you this fresh hope and joy today. That's my challenge for you as believers.